traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Welcome to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We give voice to those who challenge a prevailing sentiment in global financial markets. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests were not compensated for their appearance, nor do they supply payment in order to appear. Individuals on this podcast may hold positions in the securities that are discussed. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. This podcast episode may have ads and the occasional announcement. To listen without ads or announcements and take advantage of a host of other benefits, consider becoming a premium subscriber. Visit the website contrarian.supercast.tech. That's T-E-C-H for more information. Now, here's your host, Mr. Nathaniel E. Baker. Peter Atwater, you are the author of a book called The Confidence Map. This book just came out, and the subtitle is Charting a Path from Chaos to Clarity. And this book kind of seeks to do, or at least it would appear to seek to do, something that has kind of been the holy grail of everything, which is trying to figure out the future, as it says here in the press release, predicting imminent results and behaviors before they happen. So that sounds like it's a tall order, and you'll have to forgive me for being a tiny bit skeptical about it. Obviously, for investing purposes, and you do have a background in investing uh, before you became an author, which we'll talk about later, but maybe to start, just tell us the, these, the idea behind the book and how one would go about predicting the future before it happens. Okay. So I spent a lot of time looking at the impact of confidence on the choices we make, particularly in the investment space. And I believe that how we feel is mirrored by the stories we tell and the narratives that are in the market, and then the actions that are coincident with that. And there's sort of this existing equilibrium. And what you know is that as our stories change, as our feelings change, our actions then change with that. And so to the extent that we know the kinds of things we're likely to do if confidence rises or if confidence falls, then we can begin to predict what the crowd is likely to do next. And so you, you can start to see, particularly in the space of investing, that as confidence falls, investor preferences change dramatically. The kinds of things we want as an investor are truly a function of how we feel. You know, at one end you have, you know, stuffing our mattresses with cash. And at the other end, you have us buying things that are extraordinarily abstract, SPACs and crypto and mm. these, these things at the other end. And so my the the purpose of the book was to share this framework that I've established and used with investors for um for more than a decade now to help others to 
be able to anticipate what often get characterized as these shocking events. And mm. if you if you know how people feel, their behavior is far less shocking than you realize. Mm -hmm. Okay, so how does one go about determining what investors' moods are? Like what kind of data, what kind of inputs are you looking for there? And then how do you judge it on a scale of one to 10? Is it just kind of a ballpark? How does that work? Yeah, so I, I'm a big believer that markets measure mood, that they are probably the best barometer of investor sentiment out there. Um, price is a is a mirror of how we feel. It's like mm -hmm. a you know the thermometer in terms of, of temperature. And so you can use prices to uh, detect how not only the market feels overall using the major indices, but if I wanted to look at, so how do the rich feel today? Well, I can look at Louis Vuitton, you know, LVMH, and suddenly I have a very good uh, perspective, a good lens on how those at the very top feel. I can do the same looking at dollar stores or, or Walmart and companies like that to see how do those at the low end feel. So price is probably the, the easiest way to gauge sentiment right out of the blocks. Um, but then I, then I can pair that with the stories. I can pair that with what's, what's being shared and widely accepted on CNBC or Bloomberg or Fox Business. You know, the, the financial media is in the business of mirroring back to its audience exactly how the audience feels. And so from the kinds of people that are being brought on to the topics that are being discussed, those are giving me even more clues and then the the other is you know what are what is the crowd buying what's what's being touted and talked about in podcasts like this and in other forums that's giving me insights into that that group dynamic because we're we're we leave obvious clues that we eagerly overlook you know magazine covers are another one the, the front page of the financial times or the wall street journal they're they're telling us how we feel mm. You know, I'm afraid you're going to put me out of work here because I use magazine covers and other things as a contrarian indicator. And the whole premise of contrarian investing is that the crowd is wrong. And especially that when things get popular, that's when you want to sell them. And it sounds like, at least from the sound of it, your ideas, your thesis kind of um, nullifies that. Oh, no, no, it doesn't nullify it at all. It, it, okay. it I mean, I, I use magazine covers every, you know, every moment I can, um, and some more than others. As a you contrarian know, indicator or as a leading indicator? As a contrarian indicator. Okay. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. All right. Yeah, come on. Yeah. Because, you know, by the time something reaches the cover, the story has to be widely accepted. Um, and and even more, I, I love the covers that are extrapolating the present into the future. Mm. You know, things, you know, things that are unstoppable or relentless or the the adjectives, you know, I, I think God is in the adjectives of all of these covers in mm. terms of the the stridence of the of the movement. And and my favorite contrarian indicators, there's a sense of urgency and power and and strident voice that that to be um to to think otherwise, you know, would would make you feel like you're way outside of the crowd. That it's you know, it should bring back the the anxiety of middle school. You know, mm -hmm. and sort of not being in with the cool kids when when you you look at these covers. Mm -hmm. um, that said, I think some covers matter more than others. I'm not a I don't use Barons for example, yeah. um, because Barons can can be both provocative and contrarian. 
And so you, you need to be careful there. On the other hand, if I see something, you know, if I see cryptocurrency on the cover of Scientific America, well, that's telling me that everybody's in on it. So, mm -hmm. so to see things in finance making their way to other genres of journalism, are, that, that to me is a very powerful sentiment measure. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But I guess uh, it, it meshes well then with the contrarian uh, thesis then, because you're saying, it sounds like you're saying that if, if things get too crowded, you want to take the other side of it, right? Yes. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and at both extremes. I mean, right. I, I love nothing more than market and turmoil, you know, specials and, you know, the, the covers that suggest that things are only going to get worse. Okay. So what's the, the certainty or the, the confidence then? Is it a complete misnomer? And when people are confident that that's that just there's only overconfidence or where do you draw the line there? So I think we are equally underconfident as overconfident. And the way I look at it is that confidence comes from our feelings of certainty and our sense of control in what's ahead. When I say I'm confident, I'm entirely forward looking, which why which is why confidence to me is such a, a, a wonderful thing to look at because investors are inherently forward-looking. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, the decisions we're making today as an investor are based on our imagination of what's ahead. And, and anytime we're thinking about the future, we have to remember that we're imagining it. Mm -hmm. So we can, we can imagine rainbows and unicorns and nothing but certainty ahead at one end where we feel invulnerable. And then at the other end, we can see nothing but chaos and you know, powerlessness in the other direction. You know, if you if you looked at this the sentiment in early March 2020 when COVID hit, I, I would argue that everyone was underconfident in that moment. That that the what we were projecting in terms of lives lost and economic calamity were you know, were far darker than the reality that was ahead. Hmm. Okay, that's really interesting. So it sounds like there is a fine line that one has to tread if it wants to kind of discern the mood. This all begs the question, what do you think of today's markets and today's world, I guess? And where are we in terms of confidence? Where are investors in terms of confidence right now? Yeah, so I think investors are rapidly approaching the invulnerable extreme, um, particularly in things like AI. Mm. where there has been this mania that has also then brought along any company that is you know can can credibly argue that they have a a, a grounding in in artificial intelligence but i also look at it in terms of stocks like lvmh which is telling me that the the financial elite have never felt better um i think it's particularly notable that you know here you have a luxury relatively small luxury goods company that serves a, a very small segment of the population is the most heavily weighted by market cap company in Europe, mm. you know, worth more than Unilever and Mercedes and Shell and, you know, companies that you think of as having, you know, broad, you know, customer bases and global reach. And four of the top 10 companies in Europe are luxury good makers. And that that's saying a lot about the extreme sentiment to me at the very top. But 
I'm the I'm the economist behind the K-shaped recovery. And I think that we've left a lot of people behind where outside of the market, those that are distant from the investment space, their sentiment is is not especially good at all. Mm. And so you you see these contradictions and you know in a country like France where you have widespread rioting in the streets at the same time the financial elite feel wonderful another example by the way is Ferrari which is stock has been going all the way up and talk about a an elite luxury good I mean there's only so many that are even made yeah and and those I think are useful sentiment measures that investors often overlook and then you have things like the bond market, and bonds are seemingly falling apart. I don't know how closely you follow that, but do you think that could be people are, are have lost confidence in that? Yeah. So I think the bond market sentiment is useful if we can rewind the tape to early 2021, because we had, you know, just a little over two years ago, trillions of dollars of negative yielding bonds. Mm. And if you step back and just say, what is that telling us about sentiment? It's saying that investor sentiment in bonds is extreme. People are paying to buy bonds. So I think that was an indicator that was flashing, you know, incredible warning signs um, that was overlooked. And, and investors have paid a steep price for that as yields have risen. Um, and I think one of the the notable aspects about early 2021 was we had both stocks and bonds flashing red at the same time, which was not supposed to happen in the world of balanced investing. You know, historically, we've believed that bonds move up as stocks move down and, and the reverse. But what we've seen certainly during 2022 was declining confidence in, in both stocks and bonds simultaneously and particularly balanced investors paying a very steep price for it. You know, I when I look at interest rates, I think interest rates are an interesting sentiment measure, not only of bonds, but of our feelings towards the Fed more broadly. I mean, if you go back to the early 1980s when interest rates were approaching 20%, nobody had any faith in monetary policymakers. And yet you come to, you know, not that long ago, there was a sense that monetary policy makers were invincible, that they they could move the world. Ben Bernanke was the most powerful man in the world. Maestro was the name of uh, Greenspan's yeah. biography. Yeah. Yeah. So so I, I again, these are indicators of mood that are become very relevant because if interest rates continue to rise. What we're likely to see is um, increasing disdain and criticism aimed at the competence of the Fed that goes along with it, that, that begins to feed this negative loop where as interest rates rise, we, we lose greater and greater hope in, in those that were supposed to be guiding the process. Mm. Sick of me yet? Become a premium subscriber and avoid all ads or interruptions. Other benefits as well. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? 
the federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. You know, the final piece of this, as you know, is timing. And you can be one can be right on something for a long time and go broke. You know, markets can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent. So is there is there a piece of that in in your uh, thesis about as far as the timing of it all? I mean, you mentioned the magazine covers is like the obvious sign of the top. Is there anything else? Yeah, I mean, good can go to worse. Great can go yeah. to extraordinary. And and I think that we get so fixated on the distance between the ten yard line and the goal line that contrarians particularly start to take short positions at the top early on. And, and what, what we fail to appreciate is the movements at the extreme are the most dramatic. Mm -hmm. And so I always suggest to folks, if you're going to be a contrarian, that's great. Well, listen but to this podcast is hopefully your first suggestion, but right. But yeah, but, but you have to wait for exhaustion. Mm-hmm. And, and appreciate that a vertical line up or down is like an evening lamp light to moths. It mm. attracts a crowd. Mm-hmm. And so what you're looking for is this rocket-like or precipice-like line to suggest that all that are coming in have arrived, all that have exited, you know, have left. And that what we're looking for are elements of exhaustion, capitulation, absolute panic at the bottom, and extraordinary euphoria. Um, having said that, you, you know, timing-wise, the beauty of these extremes is you can afford to wait. You know, if we go back to March of 2020, knowing that the bottom was arriving, had you waited till April, May, even June, you would have given up a little bit of the game, but you would have, you know, there, there's a lot of reason to wait mm-hmm. um, and not to get too excited about the 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 contrarian, you know, trying to time the perfect mm-hmm. contrarian moment. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, markets give you plenty of time to to allow the, the capitulation to occur and then to, to realize that that moment is now behind you. You don't have to, don't, don't try to anticipate it. Just wait for it. Yeah. And you're probably not going to time it perfectly anyway. No. But yeah. Last I, question. I always say to clients, you know, it's around here somewhere. Yeah. 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 Last question before we go to break. And I think this is kind of an appropriate asset class. And you mentioned it, cryptos. And this is something where like the, peak mania was probably well when did it peak exactly it's 60 i think it was late 2022 even before the whole uh sam bankman freed whatever that guy's firm was called ftx yeah implosion and then you figured okay that's it cryptos are over and then they come roaring back this year so what gives here is this just another example of a bottom forming and because the bloom is off the rose for cryptos like you no yeah. longer see these crazy magazine covers and, and, you know, there's some quiet confidence in some circles, but 
it seems the mania phase is well past or has it? So I, I think the mania phase has passed and, and appreciate that we've now had two manic phases. Yeah. We had the 2017 mania and, and the more recent mania. Um, and so the, the prospect of a third one to me is even more remote. But what's been so interesting about crypto is that you can see parallel behaviors in the popularity of Elon Musk. Hmm. Um, Elon Musk to me is a wonderful human sentiment indicator. I, I, I look at him as the, the Kevin Bacon of all of the, the, the hot investment ideas of this cycle from EVs to solar to space to, hmm. to you know, various currencies. You know, he's, he's been at the, the nexus of all of them. And so we could watch as, as the price of crypto declined, so did the, the um, godlike standing of, of Elon Musk. And so to watch at the end of last year, you could see the, the disdain and anger and the sort of the, the hopelessness being paralleled in, in him that we saw with, with coins. What's been more interesting to me very recently is you've had this um, intense goal to front run the, the ETFing of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies that, that people are positioning themselves in anticipation of this coming attraction, um, which we always do. What's striking to me is how rather tepid prices responded to that. So to your point, is the bloom off the rose? I think it may be. And, and I'm you know, now watching, given all of the front running that we've seen, um, if we don't see it, or even if we do see it at this point, I'm afraid that a lot of, of powder has been um, put to use already. And I'm not, it's not entirely clear to me what moves crypto in the next big leg, short of something major with the dollar that okay that what we see isn't so much a uh, a rally in crypto as much as a drop in the dollar being um, manifesting in the value of crypto okay that's really interesting there's a lot to lot for us to think about so far i want to take a short break and then come back and ask you some more about yourself about your work and um, some other stuff but let's first take a break. If you are a premium subscriber, you do not get the break. So don't touch the dial. We'll be right back. In fact, we already are. And if you want to become a premium subscriber, visit the website contrarianpod.substack.com and sign up. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Contrarian Investor Podcast where we give voice to those who challenge a prevailing narrative in global financial markets. Consider becoming a premium subscriber. For $9 a month or less, premium subscribers receive a number of benefits. Podcasts are posted immediately after they're recorded. Transcripts are made available within 24 hours. Premium subscribers get direct access to the host. And of course, there are no ads or interruptions. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. By the way, you don't need the .tech suffix to get to that website. 
www.sharpenedmindset.com will do the trick. And we also have a Substack that you can where you can sign up for the same prices, same benefits, same details, contrarianpod.substack.com. So if you already have a Substack account and use it or have the app and use that, that's probably the best way to go. So contrarian.supercast.com or contrarianpod.substack.com. Whole bunch of benefits, including, of course, getting this episode up to a week early without ads or annoying announcements. And you also get the Daily Contrarian briefing and podcast that is released every market day morning at 7 a.m. This is a contrarian take on the events of the day ahead and what is likely to move markets, such as economic data releases, earnings, and other things. It is really good, and that is completely unbiased, of course. So check that out, contrarianpod.substack.com or contrarian.supercast.tech. Now on with the show. Welcome back, everybody. Here with Peter Atwater, author of The Confidence Map, Charting a Path from Chaos to Clarity. Peter, this is the segment of the podcast where we ask our guests to tell us a little bit more about themselves, how they arrived at this station in their career, how they got their start in investing, their origin story, if you will, to put things into Marvel terms uh, as far as becoming an investor, and how it all wind them up where they are today. So uh, with that, yeah, t- tell us about that. Take it away and, and tell us about yourself. Yeah, please. so so my my elevator story is that um, you know right out of college, I went to work for J.P. Morgan um, in the early 1980s. Uh, great timing because Morgan was transitioning from bank to investment bank, and uh, I landed in the what became the asset-backed securities area, helping uh, auto companies and credit card companies securitize their debt. Um, uh, ran that group and then ultimately went to work for one of my clients, First USA. We got bought by Bank One, uh, was treasurer there, helped with the asset management business, and then ran the private client business. Um, left there after the um, after the dot com bubble burst to work with uh, folks at First USA who had worked with before to create a uh, online credit card company, Juniper, that got bought by. Barclays. When I turned 45, my son said, dad, you're halfway to 90. Hmm. And I said, Um, and so I stopped working, wasn't quite sure what it was I wanted to do next. Uh, Next turned out to be working with some hedge funds, uh, helping them navigate the 2008 financial crisis, having been a bank treasurer, knowing a lot about securitization, working with regulators, rating agencies, pretty pretty good sense of how crises, the crisis was going to play out. What I didn't realize was why the markets bottomed in 2009, given the hopelessness that I saw. And so as the markets took off, I got really confused. And that led me to spend a lot of time looking at investor sentiment and trying to discover what is it and why does it matter And um, so I started researching confidence and discovered that it's a word we all use, 
that we have no idea what it means. Mm. Um, you know, typically we describe confidence by the behavior of others. You know, look at LeBron, look at Beyonce, look at Elon Musk. They're confident. Be that. And what I come up with is a model that I share in my book that is all about certainty and control, because we need both of those to feel confident. And if I can understand the certainty and control that you feel, then I can start to understand the choices you're going to make and the stories you tell. Hmm. Um, one of the things I think we overlook in sort of this contrarian view is um, the opposite of confidence is vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And that becomes a really useful lens to see how people are behaving. Because what to me defines a mania isn't so much overconfidence as it is invulnerability. Mm. People are afraid of nothing and their investing behavior reflects that in its size and its risk appetite and its absence of scrutiny. And at the other extreme, when we are feeling intensely vulnerable, you see the, the opposing behaviors where we're we're afraid to take risk and and if we take risk at all it's in things that have very low you know low potential for loss what part of this uh is do you also where do you view fomo because uh robert schiller yale economist and his work about bubbles writes that it's a lot of times it's not so much that people think believe even believe anything is true but they just see other people getting rich and they have envy over that and pile into the same assets as a result, hoping for the, for the, you know, the same result that, that's happened to all these other people. Um, where do you, where do you factor that in, in, in there? Yeah. So I think jealousy is an important element of this because what we're seeing is others reaping enormous abundance and what we're feeling is scarcity. Mm -hmm. We don't have it as much as they have. And as that gap widens, it really gnaws at us. Mm -hmm. And so we decide clearly too late in the process to play catch up. And so you see the, the novice and naive racing in to catch up moments before the turn. And, and I, I, I look at novice behavior as a really important sentiment indicator. Mm -hmm. When people who shouldn't be mm -hmm. aware, shouldn't be diving in are you know, are going in with, you know, holding hand, you know, bags of money, that that's an indicator that we're, we're approaching the end of that cycle. Yeah, that's the old mother in law indicator, right? Or, yeah, high school buddies, right? People who have absolutely nothing, don't work in finance, have no knowledge of it suddenly come out of the woodworks. Yeah, it was like, you, you know, when, yeah. when grandma was asking about crypto and the Thanksgiving table in 2017, it's like, okay, that's, yeah. that's a sign. Yeah, yeah, it's the famous uh, shoe shine boy, which, by the way, I've seen attributed to many different people. I'm not even sure yep. that story is true, but it's a great story. Yeah, right. Okay, so where does that leave one in terms of asset allocation? You know, going back to bonds versus stocks. I guess the obvious thing is you buy bonds, you sell stocks. Uh, is there anything else there? You yeah. Gold? So yeah, particularly today, you know, I think that. Our strategy for diversification has been to look at historical correlations. And I don't think those are necessarily relevant today. My, my recommendation in terms of diversification 
is really driven by sentiment diversification. That to be successful over the long run, you want to own some things that are hot, some things that are in, taken for dead, you know, things where sentiment is clearly rising and sentiment is clearly falling. Because what, what provides the benefit of diversification is those varying trend lines and sentiment changes that both benefit you at times and at other times harm you. I mean, we, 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 and so particularly given what we've, what we've witnessed with the, the extreme sentiment in stocks and bonds simultaneously, I think we need to be careful not to just stick with this, this pie chart from the past mm. that never anticipated a, an environment where all pieces of the pie would be piping hot at the same time. Because mm. the, the danger that I see is that the, the pie cools all at once, mm -hmm. that rates rise, stock prices fall, that there's a, there's a, there's a financial asset drop that touches all financial assets at once. Mm -hmm. Which is what we saw in late 08, early 09, if memory serves. Yes. Things like that were seen as safety, like the Swiss franc and the gold got bludgeoned along with everything else. The only thing that didn't was treasuries. So is there anything right now that you think is obviously at an inflection point where it's uh, poised to become popular and it's at kind of at a low in confidence where you, you, you think it's a buy? Yeah, there are things in the commodity space, mm. yeah, um, particularly natural gas. Okay. Um, so if I go back to last summer, natural gas was skyrocketing and it was skyrocketing because people were afraid of what was happening in Ukraine. There was fear about capacity in, in Europe. And so it became a, a symbol of turmoil in Europe. And as all symbols do, it became overbelieved. Mm -hmm. um, and, and this is something we see repeatedly. And, and it was a symbol to me of scarcity. And if I look today, as is always the case with commodities, price has fallen, and now there is a sense of extraordinary abundance. Mm -hmm. And with that abundance comes a sense of complacency. And so you know, I'm I'm not professing that the low is in or that the low is you know imminent, but what I see is a a relaxation, a complacency around something that just moments ago we were terrified about it running out and prices reflecting that. Mm. And so, you know, I I like to look at things where you you have a sense of of extreme certainty, either of abundance or scarcity and, and liquid natural gas, you know, or, or natural gas more broadly sort of fits that definition today. Yeah. Or commodities in general, when you talk, when there's talk about how, you know, the world is awash in oil and our problem is too much oil, not too little. That's when things have kind of gotten to the bottom. You know, it's on the other side there can't ever be enough oil and the prices are going to keep going higher and higher. Uh, yeah, and that's right. And there's reasons for that because the investment cycle and all these other things. Um, and you and so, you yeah. see that mirrored in our view of the powerful or powerlessness of OPEC. 
Um, yeah. You know, I, I'm a big believer that um, oligopolies are only as powerful as the price of the product they're believed to control. Yeah. And so yeah. the fact that we're seeing dissension among um, among OPEC members is, a, again, an indicator that price is low, sentiment is, is weak. Um, if we see a reversal, folks will go back to the view that OPEC is the most powerful organization in the, in the world. So all of this kind of assumes that, you know, things are cyclical and that they come around, but every once in a while, things fall apart, to quote uh, Yeats here, if you'll forgive me, right? Like sometimes, and it hasn't really happened in the US, although maybe in the depression or whatever, but, you know, sometimes things do fall apart and society falls apart. And the history is full of examples. Again, not so much here in the U.S., but anywhere else, except for like maybe Canada. What yeah, else? So, so, so you see social unrest, whether it's the Arab Spring, you know, the French Revolution. Mm. You know, we can we can look at these moments in history, and they're they're all driven by feelings of intense vulnerability mm. that things seem uncertain, and people feel ill-prepared, ill-equipped, incapable of dealing with that. In the case of the Arab Spring, driven by food inflation and food scarcity. But we need to be cognizant today, I think, of the, the real pessimism that exists in many corners of the United States. And, and I know that a lot of attention is given to the left versus right divide, but to me, the, the more um, disconcerting divide is, is up and down in terms mm. of relative economics and, and, again, relative confidence. Because when my confidence is low, what I care about is me here now. Mm. And so my decision-making is going to be impulsive. It's going to be emotional. And it doesn't take mm. much to spark mass social movement today. Mm. If you look at the tools that we have in terms of social media, small changes in mood can quickly spread both in intensity and in, in volume. We saw that with the Black Lives Matter movement a couple of years ago, that, that you, know, you, ha you have a single event, which, which sadly had occurred before, suddenly triggering a mass social movement because confidence was extremely low to begin with. Mm -hmm. And, I, and I'd argue we've seen a similar parallel with what just happened with the with Silicon Valley Bank and First mm -hmm. Republic in, a, in another way, where now we give people the online banking tools and trading tools to, to act on their changes in sentiment very quickly. And, mm -hmm. and in those moments, price then becomes both cause and effect. Mm -hmm. And people looking at the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank price shares and then that triggering an even greater stampede into into other things mm -hmm. yeah although that's that situation has since reversed and there you go maybe another example i mean regional banks were a great buying opportunity in march and april turns out if you look at the recent price action some of these have rallied in a major way yeah and that's not uncommon you know panic I, I believe panic is God's way of telling us that the worst is behind us, mm -hmm. but we always see it as the worst is ahead of us. Mm -hmm. Panics are intensely 
um, they they tend to be energy exhausting, mm -hmm. behaviorally exhausting. And anytime I see panic, I, I'm quick to tell people this is going to end quickly and prepare for the other side. Mm -hmm. I don't know at what price level. I don't know, you know, whether it's this week or next week. But again, you don't you don't have to time the end of a panic to the moment. And I, I think panic is a moment to prepare, not a moment to get in line trying to race for the exit. Mm -hmm. Very, very contrarian viewpoint here to wrap things up. Peter, thank you so much for joining the Contrarian Investor Podcast today. In closing, maybe tell our listeners how they can find out more about you. I will include links in the show notes as well as a link to the book so they can buy that. Um, yeah, I don't know if you are active on social media or anywhere else. Yeah, they can find me on Twitter. Mm. And I'm at Peter underscore Atwater. I'm also uh, write a blog uh, columns on LinkedIn. Um, and uh, they can find me uh, permanently at uh, PeterAtwater.com. Okay, that's all very good. Very easy to remember as well. PeterAtwater.com. Check it out. Again, I'll put the links in there. Thank you so much for coming and speaking with us, Peter. Fascinating conversation. Hope you all enjoyed it. I know I did. And with that, we will see you again next week. Speak then. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. To subscribe to this podcast, simply open your favorite podcast software and search for Contrarian Investor. Follow us on social media by searching for Contrarian Investor on Twitter and Instagram. Send us your thoughts on feedback at contrarianpod.com. We look forward to speaking to you again next time. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.